You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff with... Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, and guys, we have uh, plenty of draft to talk about. The top 150 draft prospects list is out as of uh, last night, and so we uh, we expanded from 100 to 150, uh, not only added players, but also updated the list uh, according uh, to, well, Somewhat to performance, but there hasn't been a whole lot of performance to this date. Um, so, guys, kind of kind of interesting. Um, let's talk about uh, we'll talk about the draft class as a whole. Um, talk a little bit about the depth of the class, but also I think one of the most intriguing things is just how how are players stock moving at all, considering the the lack of. Uh, views that that they've received well so there's like a whole lot of questions in there so i, I think it, it's it's extremely difficult i mean on the one hand you know when we were talking to uh scouting directors and, and you know people like that the decision makers and, and jim correct me if you differently but you know i think most of them were like well listen we could have the draft right now you know but it's based almost entirely uh, on what they may have seen over the summer um, so what I think that means is that college players who played on the Cape and, you know, high school players who did a lot of the summer showcase stuff, especially the PDP league guys and the USA baseball guys, they got even more looks. They're at a little bit of an advantage just in terms of having seen against good levels of competition. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't guys who jumped out to a good start this spring before things were shut down, but uh, you know, usually what happens is maybe there's some pop-up guys who get off to a good start and then decision makers come streaming in to see that guy and that can push them up into say first round conversation or kind of make them go back down. And uh, that obviously was not able to, to happen this, this time around. So I think those are the, the kinds of players, uh, guys from cold weather States who, who got, hurt the most, even if the scouting directors by and large feel that they, they could put together a draft board and hold the draft now if they needed to. Yeah. I mean, compared to last year, you know, guys like Andrew Dahlquist who got $2 million in the third round and Hudson head who got $3 million in the third round. Those guys didn't get the chance to emerge uh, this season like they did a year ago. Um, You know, teams did get to see college players for four weeks. You know, you're not going to totally rip up your old scouting report and base it solely on those four weeks. But they did get to see guys, you know, high school players, especially in the in the warmer weather areas. You know, they, there were scrimmages. You know, I know I, I do the southeast. Um, they had a big event in, in at Hoover Stadium, Hoover Metropolitan Stadium in, in Alabama, where a bunch of guys were, uh, you know, they got a bunch of high school players from all over the southeast were there. So those guys, guys did get looks at players. You know, you did see guys 
like a like a Zach Veen looked very good in Florida. He kind of shot to the top of the college, the uh, high school position player list. You know, Max Meyer at Minnesota was was pretty spectacular in four starts. He shot up. The 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 ones that the, there there's so many guys who are just conundrums for teams to figure out. Like you know, what do you do with a guy like Bryce Jarvis? At Duke, who we, we put at number 25 on our, our top 150. You know, this is a guy who's draft eligible last year. You know, probably would have gone six to ten as a strike thrower with good change up. Comes out in the fall, all of a sudden he's throwing, he's gotten stronger, he's throwing 93, 96. You know, his his change ups, you know, still, you know, very, you know, probably the best change up, you know, on our top 150. The breaking ball is a lot better. Guys are like, okay, this is interesting. I want to see how this plays this spring. And he comes out and he throws a perfect game. He almost throws a second perfect game. He looks great. But you saw it for four starts. Was that going to hold up? You know, guys like Garrett Crochet, who, you know, we have as a mid-first rounder right now, he, he looked like he was making the leap in the fall from second or third round pick to top 10 pick. I mean, his stuff was spectacular too. And then he missed three starts. You know, people think it was more of a precaution this year uh, with the, uh, they haven't really pinned down exactly what it was, but it's, either, it's like some kind of muscle soreness in his upper back or his shoulder. And then he came and pitched, you know, three and a third innings, one outing looked great. That's it. That's your whole look at him or, or even, you know, Clayton beater at Texas tech who, you know, had Tommy John as a freshman at Texas tech. he, you know, comes, you know, it winds up actually having his elbow scoped a second procedure before he even takes the mound for Texas Tech. And then he comes back this spring, or I'm sorry, he comes back last year as a redshirt freshman. He leads the team with eight saves. They go to the College World Series. And you know, so guys are interested in him. He's on everybody's radar. And then he comes out this this year as a starter, cuts it, I mean, a small sample size both years, cuts his walk rate from 8.7 last year to 1.7 this year. And it's 93 98 with a wipeout curveball and a mid 80s slider and a solid changeup. And so that guy's looking like a first round talent easy, but you know, he's had as many elbow procedures as quality starts in college, which is two. So like the weird thing, I think for, for guys who kind of, even the guys who did get a chance to burst out is how much emphasis do you put on just four starts? You bring up an interesting point. Uh, it's something that a uh, scouting director I talked to uh, yesterday when I was working on the, you know, the main story to go with the, the launching of our list. And he was saying, you know, track record obviously is always important. Uh, that's not something new. You know, uh, if you have a guy who's done it for two plus years in the SEC versus a guy who just started doing it in the Atlantic Sun Conference or even in the SEC, you know, it's going to be weighed differently. But this year, track record is even more important. Uh, and the scouting director brought up an interesting guy from last year. And I, w- I wanted to get uh, your, your take on on this. He was saying that a guy like Hunter Bishop this year would be not in trouble, but would likely not go nearly as highly as he did uh, if, thing- if things had been cut short last year because people didn't know enough about him. Uh, you know, they got a chance to go in and see him more and, and, and more, but there was still not three years of, of performance to – to go from you know on from him he really kind of jumped up to the top of the first round because of the spring he had more than anything else do you think do you think he had that right jim i mean do you, you know i'm not saying that hunter bishop ends up being a third round pick if you know things happen this year but you're less likely to take the chance on a a slightly more raw and toolsy college player if you don't have the, the 
of performance to go from. Yeah, I mean, you, you could throw guys, you know, who weren't on our preseason top 50 last year, too, like like Jackson Rutledge and, and Cody Hosey, I guess, into that kind of group, too. You know, the one thing with Hunter that I think would have helped is, is, is the pure tools were so good. I'm not saying he would have gone 10th to the Giants like he did. I, I still think if you like the difference between last year's draft and this year's draft is this year's draft feels a lot deeper to me. Um, and, and, and so I, I do think track record, you know, will matter. You, you, you have more guys with track record to choose from. I mean, just the, the, the sheer difference. I mean, last year guys were saying, and I said it too. I mean, I've been covering this stuff for 30 years. That, that was the worst group of college pitchers who belonged in the first round I could ever remember. It was bad. And so there weren't a lot of alternatives. So, so with Hunter Bishop specifically, I think, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. He, like I said, he wouldn't have gone 10. I still think he probably goes in the first round just because he was off to such a great start. And he had great tools and there weren't pitching options. You know, this year, if you want to not so much play it safe, but you want track record, you know, even if you don't count, you know, like the guys I mentioned, like the Jarvises and the beaters, who you don't have track record with. I mean, there's probably 15 or 20 pitchers who easily go in the top two rounds, college pitchers who you have a lot of history with, who've had success that if you're, you know, a little skittish, like, oh, we don't have track record on this guy or ah, I wanted more looks at the high school guys. There's a lot of college pitching options this year. So I think in some ways, um, that's going to be helpful to teams. Although, and, and you could tell me if you've heard differently, Jonathan, all the teams I've talked to feel like, yeah, you know, is this optimal? No, they've gotten lots of looks at guys. They're prepared. Um, I don't think teams are going to run away from high school players um, because they didn't get many looks at them this spring. They did get a lot of looks at them last fall. There's video teams are obviously doing a lot of video work. Um, but, you know, if you do have misgivings or you're feeling like, Hey, it's a five round draft. I, I don't want to necessarily go out on a limb with my first pick. Like this year, you could easily say, oh, well, here's – I mean, basically picking anywhere in the first round, uh, here's a, a college pitcher with some track record and stuff. I'll take this guy, and then, and then we'll figure it out after this. So is there anyone in this year's class that kind of fits that bill that you were talking about, Jonathan, uh, a Hunter Bishop type that could be hurt by the way things are playing out this year? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it depends on how you want to sort of look at that question. You know, I don't know that there's anyone who exactly fits the bill from like a toolsy college position player, like to be that exact. Um, one guy that comes to mind actually is also another Arizona State guy, and that's Alika Williams, a shortstop. Everyone loves the defense, but there were questions about the bat. He started like crazy the very start of the spring and then was really kind of turning it on. And I think had he been given the rest of the season, he's going to do okay in the draft just because of the defensive ability and there's athleticism and there is upside with the bat. Um, we have him at number 40 overall. So, you know, we've sort of seen more as a second rounder. Maybe that's where he belongs. But especially because there are so few true shortstops in this class or middle infielders of any kind, if he had continued to swing the bat well, like he was doing before the shutdown, and kept hitting by June, maybe he's the kind of guy that sneaks into the back end uh, you know, of the first round. And the other guy that I'm thinking of, who I think this probably hurts more than anybody else, is Nick Bitsko, um, who's a high school right-hander from Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a guy that we wasn't in our top 100 when we first launched it. Then he reclassified, and we slotted him in. He's at number 14 right now. 
he didn't throw a competitive inning this spring because uh, it hadn't warmed up yet. He threw one bullpen for a whole bunch of scouts, and that was it. Um, so here is a guy who, yes, has a ton of talent. I think he's probably going to go anyway. Um, the thing that makes it difficult is that will he go high enough to sign? Um, you know, he's got a commitment to University of Virginia. That's that it's it, that's not nothing. Uh, he, you know, I think he's a kid who would have been happy to go to school. You know, I, the one thing I wonder is whether or not the lack of looks uh, makes some teams a little hesitant. And he's a high school pitcher anyway, which is the highest risk category uh, to begin with. The fact that they didn't see him, and even though he pitched over the summer at some things, people weren't bearing down on him because they thought he was still an underclassman. Yeah, it's you know I think you can look at some of these guys both ways. Uh, you know, like you you could flip Alika Williams around a little bit too. You know, as with Jarvis and Clayton Beater, and say, well, they never got a chance to tail off either. So maybe that's as the last look that that, that helps him a little bit. I, you know, I mentioned Crochet earlier. I think this hurts him because he had missed the three starts. You know, it wasn't serious. He came back to the mound, but people wanted to see you know this new and improved stuff he showed in the fall, and you got to see it for three innings. I think it hurts him with Bitsko. You know, I've heard from a couple teams kind of lamenting that because you don't have the looks, it may be tough to take him where he actually belongs in the draft, which would be somewhere, you know, in the 10 to 20 range, probably. And, and I've, I've, I've actually had multiple teams lament to me, like, oh, just watch, that guy's going to fall to like the Dodgers or Yankees. And like, you know, then they're going to be able to get him at the end of the first round. And then we're going to look back three years from now and go like, why did he last that many picks? So like teams are already kind of, kind of worrying about that a little bit. Um but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, like a guy like Max Meyer looked great, you know. So I, in some ways, you know, you could say, well, maybe his stuff would have fallen off too. But it didn't. And guys liked him enough coming in. So he probably goes in the, in the top 10 picks. I mean, it, it's weird. I mean, I almost think this is kind of like half, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. Like if you like a guy, then you're going to convince yourself to believe that what you saw in four weeks this spring was real. And... If you don't like a guy as much, then you're going to be like, ah, I'm not sure about his track record. But it's certainly going to be interesting for teams to try to figure that out because I mean, there's there's a bunch of guys who just kind of you know burst out of nowhere this year, or or, or at least significantly improved their stock based on just four weeks. Jonathan, you mentioned Alika Williams and in, in uh, reference to the dearth of uh, middle infield prospects. Um, and I want to circle back and talk about that. But before we talk about uh, relative weakness of the class, let's talk a little bit about the strength of this year's draft class. I think, uh, you know, you can sort of divvy up that kind of question in a couple of different ways. You know, it, it's, it's definitely college heavy, especially up top. You know, the top six guys, nine of the top ten are all are college. I know there's a run of high schools after that, but I think most people see it as college heavy. And uh, and and pitching heavy, uh, you know, Jim mentioned, you know, comparing this year to to last year in terms of like the college pitching, uh, there's more of it. And guys who are like a little bit lower on our list, you know, in terms of even among the college pitching crop would be, you know, in the top 10 to 15 uh, in, in last year's group. So and those things are kind of cyclical. So I, I think those are probably the, the strengths after you get past that that slew of college guys right at the top. I really like the, the, the high school, some of the high school bats that we have 
uh, in that run of high schoolers after that. And that's where the high school pitching comes in also. Um, but, uh, you know, the Austin Hendricks and Robert Hassels of the world, Tyler Soderstrom, there are some guys who can really, really hit from that high school group that, that I like to come right after that. And there's a little more depth there. You know what I think is a little underrated or overshadowed might be a better way to put it. But, you know, last year we had a, you know, what kind of made up for the lackluster college pitching group is we had a really good group of college position players. And that's usually not the case because most of the time, if you're athletic and you can hit even a little bit, you get sign out of high school. Um, you know, there are some exceptions and, and, you know, I agree and I've written it too. Like, there's all this college pitching, but the first two picks in this draft are probably going to be college position players in Torkelson, in Spencer Torkelson, in Arizona State, and Austin Martin at Vanderbilt. And then you got Nick Gonzalez, who, who's going to be a top five pick. Garrett Mitchell, who's going to be a top ten pick. Has you know five of the top ten picks in this draft could be college position players too. And there's some depth that you know with college bats also. So you know, as you said, Jonathan, a really good college crop. And and while I I also focus a lot on the pitchers. You know, I think this is an unusually good group of college position players for the second year in a row. So I mentioned the shortstops and the sort of lack of first round talents uh, based on um, the rankings here. There are two shortstops in the top 30. Uh, Ed Howard, uh, prep shortstop out of Illinois, is number 15. Um, Nick Gonzalez, who we have listed as shortstop slash second base at New Mexico State, is number five, um, but not a, a, I guess, a true shortstop um, or someone that you would project to stick there in the long run. And then Casey Martin, uh, another shortstop at number 30. A couple questions here. Can you remember the last time that there were so few first-round talents at the shortstop position in a draft class? And is there anyone kind of lingering outside of that top 30 that could potentially work their way into the first round? Well, I, I, I've, I've cheated and gone to the, the baseball reference draft database to look. Um, and, you know, 2010, Manny Machado went number three, and Christian Colon, who a lot of people didn't think was going to stay at shortstop, went number four, and there wasn't another shortstop in the first round. And, and in 2007, there was Mike Moustakis and Pete Cosma in the first round, neither of whom I think people thought was a lock to state shortstop long-term. And then again, not a shortstop in the first round. So you had those years, um, you know, I, I do think this stuff is cyclical. Um, you know, even Casey Martin, Casey Martin might wind up in center fielder. I mean, he's a really good runner. He had a, a, a bad year or I should say bad month because <laughs> it wasn't a, a full season that, that probably knocked him out of the first round. I mean, yeah, there, there are some shortstops. You know, Jonathan mentioned Alika Williams. He could definitely defend, um, you know, the bats a little bit more of a question. You know, if he went late first or sandwich, it wouldn't shock me. Nick Lofton at Baylor is kind of your quintessential, you know, doesn't, you know, do anything flashy, but he, but he makes plays at short and he can hit. I mean, I, I think Nick Lofton's probably going to go into go in the back half of the first round. You know, Jordan Westberg at Mississippi State is another shortstop who he's more toolsy than those two guys. Um, you know, maybe a few more questions on his bat. You know, Carson Tucker in Arizona is making a move, um, you know, like his brother did, you know, a few years ago. So I, I think we'll see shortstops, um, you know, go. And even though we only have two, you know, this isn't a projection, I guess two ranked as first rounders because there's 29 first round picks, you could see you know, three, four, five of these guys go in the first round, certainly by the end of the sandwich round, 
top of the second round, I think. Jim, you mentioned Carson Tucker. Uh, he was on our preseason list. I believe he was number 100. Then fell off when Bitsko got added, when he reclassified. Um, and now he has jumped uh, back up to number 52. Uh, so he appears to be one of the bigger risers on this list. Who are some other bigger risers? And how, how are these players uh, rising with as, as little uh, performance as there's been? Yeah, I mean, Tucker is, you know, for people who aren't familiar, although we've talked about it a lot, you know, Jim and I split up the the country and Tucker is in Arizona, which is a state that I handle. So I'll start with him. And the fact that he is in Arizona is is, is the main one of the main answers to your your second question, Jason, in terms of how does a guy rise? Now, this is this is Cole Tucker's younger brother. And Cole Tucker did something very similar where he kind of shot up boards uh, because of his athleticism and had a really good senior season and was still a little bit of a surprise as a first round pick, but probably would have gone in the, in, in the sandwich round if, if the pirates hadn't taken him when they did. Uh, his brother uh, isn't exactly the same player. I, I don't think he's, he's not as super athletic, doesn't run as well. Uh, he's a little more quiet and reserved while Cole is, much more outgoing. That's neither here nor there. But what he did do similarly is he got off to a really good start uh, this spring. He was always good, right? We had him right on that edge of, of the top 100. Uh, then he went out and really, really performed, and he did two things. One, he played a very consistent shortstop. He was kind of a kid who would make uh, make a flashy play but not make the consistent play. He did all of that extremely well. He he is a no doubt about it shortstop long-term, even though uh, he doesn't run super well. He got stronger, which also helped him run better. So all those things are trending upwards. Now, the fact that he was in Arizona in the warm weather is similar to, say, kids in Florida or or, uh, or California, I guess, is a, is a better example. But the difference being is that scouting directors, even general managers, uh, who were in Arizona for the start of spring training could go and see him or they could go and see him on their way to go see Spencer Torkelson and all the rest of the Arizona state crop. And there was a lot of them on our top 150. I remember uh, when I was in spring training right before things ended, I went to uh, an Arizona state game on Friday and a whole bunch of scouts it was like a caravan went to see Carson Tucker in the afternoon and he had a really good day. Uh, started driving the ball more and, uh, I think he had a couple of homers that day uh, and then went over to watch the Arizona state game. So because of the proximity to spring training, he got seen a lot more early than a lot of other players. The thinking being, you know, typically go see him when you can early because you know, you're going to be kind of running around the country to see these other guys you haven't seen, which obviously didn't happen. So I think it's a combination of all those things that allowed him to, to, to jump up as, as much as he did. Yeah, it, it, you know, I think Zach Veen, who's another one of your guys, Jonathan, is kind of similar. You know, he was in Florida. It's easy to double up when you're when you're doing spring training stuff and see him. You know, some of the guys I mentioned, you know, the pitchers, I, you know, it's guys like Jarvis and, you know, Clayton Beater and, you know, Landon Knack is, is like the guy who's the most interesting guy or one of the most interesting guys to me in the whole draft. Um, you know, their stuff just took a huge leap. Now, you got to figure out exactly what to do it. But like, we, you know, people saw, you know, crazy stuff. Um, 
you know, I think, you know, Seth Lon's way to Ohio State was a guy who'd been on people's radar. He came out and was averaging about two strikeouts an inning. So, I, so he made a leap. You know, I think the next highest position player who, who came from off the list to on it was Corey Collins, who's a, a high school catcher from Georgia who can really hit. And he had missed the summer. He actually hurt his elbow at the PDP League, um, I think the first day when I was there. Um, and so he didn't get seen for the rest of the summer. And he caught a little bit, but the, but the bat looked good when he came back this spring. So I think he was kind of more on people's minds. And people, you know, in the warmer areas of the country, you know, even where there isn't spring training, guys guys did get out to see, you know, a lot of scrimmage, high schools do scrimmages before the season begins. So even with high school players, guys got, got looks. And I, I want to double back real quick because <laughs> I, I just alluded to him. Like, to me, like, the, the, the craziest story – on our top 150 list is Landon Knack at East Tennessee State. Just like and, and talking about the you know teams trying to figure out like what they're supposed to do with this guy. So he he's a fifth year senior. He's 20, he's almost 23 years old. He's he's the best fifth year senior prospect in years, and he tore his his pitching labrum diving into a base in high school. So he redshirts his first year in junior college at Walter State. Comes back, dislocates his other shoulder diving into a base. So he missed most of that year. Then he finally gets to play, and he winds up you know, going 13-0 on the mound, hitting 11 homers. Walter State goes to the JUCO World Series Finals. Um, goes to East Tennessee State last year as a, a 22-year-old junior and pounds the zone, uh, one, you know, pitches very well at that level. I think he won his first eight decisions, throws a lot of strikes. Nobody drafts him. I mean, this is a guy who, who you know, probably would have signed for five or $10,000 last year. N- nobody wanted him. Then he comes out this year, you know, his stuff's up a little bit better in the fall. He's, he's been lifting, uh, you know, he's gotten in better shape. He's got kind of a burly frame. And, and then in 98, there, in January, there's reports he's touching 98 on Rapsodo. And everybody's like, hmm, interesting. And they go out and this spring, out of nowhere, this is a guy who was 89 to 92 last year. He's 93, 95, touching 98. His, his you know, changeup was was probably his best secondary pitch last year, but everything was kind of fringy. Now he's got, you know, a good change up. The, the slider's a solid pitch. His curveball was a get me over curveball. Now it's like a, a harder curveball. And he and he strikes out fifty-one guys in twenty-five innings and has a fifty-one to one strikeout to walk ratio. And I, I you know, I mean this was created me angst, Jonathan, try to figure out where we're supposed to rank him. Because I mean just based on the stuff, if this guy was a twenty one year old junior, you'd probably take him in the first round. You know, but this was a guy who's going to be 23 in July. You know, he, he could wind up going. He'll he'll probably go higher than where we would have him ranked. We had him at 113. But if you're looking at a team who's looking to create money in your bonus pool, especially if it's only a five-round draft, you could take a guy like this. Maybe you take him in the second round, sign him super cheap, and then go pay a high school guy in the third round. But I, I this guy just fascinates me. All right, guys, let's uh, go. Let's scroll all the way up to the top of the list. Um Back in December, when we put out the top 100 list, the top five in order were Emerson Hancock, Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, Nick Gonzalez, Asa, Asa Lacey. Um, not much has changed. Same five players, but in a slightly different order now. Torkelson, Martin, Lacey, Hancock, Gonzalez. Who's going to go number one? I think, you know, and not, what do you think, Jonathan? I, I was going to say, not because we have him at number one, but I, I, I think if I, if I were to guess now, and this was without having any conversations with anybody about 
who the Tigers are going to take. I, I think I, I think it would be Spencer Torkelson. I think it's going to be one of the two bats. Um, and uh, and I, and I think that Torkelson's very very long track record and how quick I think he can be an impact bat in the in the big leagues is why the the Tigers would go in that direction and he'd be a nice sort of complement to all the pitching prospects that they've kind of amassed to add or close to the to, to the top of their system now. Yeah, and it's again, I mean, we're just guessing here. I, I don't think anybody's really pinned anything down about what they want to do. I was in Lakeland for spring training. I was in Tigers camp for a day and ran into some of their guys. I know, not that they were saying they wouldn't take him, they, like a lot of teams, were hoping to get a look at Austin Martin at shortstop this year at Vanderbilt. That was kind of the hope. Instead, he's played third base and center field. I, th- I think if, if Austin Martin was playing shortstop and looked really good there, that you know could maybe push him over the top. And I think they still could take Martin. You know, it, it, It's kind of when you're, when you're breaking those two guys down, it's kind of like we talked about in the podcast a couple weeks ago when we did the, the, the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. versus Wander Franco story. Do you take the guy who's more limited defensively but could have a very, very special bat? Or do you take the guy who's got a really good bat, you know, probably a better, you know, better pure hitter, you know, not nearly as much raw power, but who can you know, beat you in more ways? And I think it's, it's more a matter of taste. But my sense, based more on just, you know, reading tea leaves like Jonathan is, would be Torkelson too. But I, I think it's one of those two guys. All right. Uh, let's uh, move on here. I know you guys could talk about the draft all day and you just as a matter of fact just uh, wrapped up a twitter q a uh, not not long ago uh a little bit earlier this afternoon so let's move on from the draft and let's talk about the uh shortstop list that is out now uh we've been doing this for the past few weeks our beat reporters for each team are uh coming up with the all-time best player at each position for that organization. And this week's position is shortstop. And then as kind of a uh, uh, side cart to that, we have been doing the top t- the uh, top prospect at that position uh, for each team based on uh, looking back at the past 20 years um, since we've been ranking prospects here at MLB.com. And, I think going into this, we, we all probably assumed that a shortstop group was going to be an impressive one, and uh, we were not let down by that. Um, looking at the team, uh, all-time best shortstops, 12 Hall of Famers, um, including all five in uh, the National League Central uh, are Hall of Famers there. Um, a very impressive group, obviously. And then the top prospects uh, for each team – at shortstop is probably our most uh, impressive group yet. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys who wind up being number one overall prospects at some point in their careers and and even be, you know, I'm just off the top of my head looking at the list. You know, Wander Franco is number one right now. Glaber Torres was number one at the end of a season before Shohei Otani got signed in that offseason. Alex Bregman was the number one prospect. Corey Seager was the number one prospect. And then just a bunch of guys who were top five prospects. Did, did we count these up? How many of these guys were top five prospects? I'm trying to do this real quick in my head. I've got 14, 14 I think, or unless I miscounted there, were, were top five prospects. Yeah, I know I know 19 of them were top 10 
overall. And yeah, it looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13, yeah, 13 or 14 top five overall. Yeah. And almost everybody, I mean, there's only a couple exceptions, but I, but I agree with you. It was, you know, I, I thought by far the most impressive group of historical prospects that we've looked at while I, I guess this is the fifth position we've done in the series now. Yeah. And each, each we've looked at, um, we've kind of broken down the list a few different ways. And one, one of the things that we've looked at is which of the players on our list of uh, top prospect over the past 20 years in the organization could potentially become the all-time best player at that position in his organization. And the first few positions, there were two, three, four was the most. And on this week's list, we have, we identified nine different players that have a reasonable chance at becoming the best player, the best shortstop in their organization's history, which is, certainly saying something nine out of 30 teams have a player currently in their organization that could become re- realistically could become uh, the best in that team's history. The, the players that we identified that, that uh, fit that bill were Bobichet. And, and a lot of these guys obviously are very early in their careers. Um, and that's natural because we're looking at uh, players who have been prospects over the past 20 years. Uh, but Bobichet, um, the late Tony Fernandez, uh, was uh, determined to be the best shortstop in in Toronto's history. Um, obviously, very early for Bo Bichette, but you could see him uh, overtaking Fernandez eventually. Um, someone who's yet to play a major league game, Wander Franco. Uh, that's a situation where the all-time best shortstop in his organization's history is not one of the more impressive on the, on the uh, list of thirty teams. It's Julio Lugo. Um, so you have to. Wow! What did Julio Lugo ever do to you? <laughs> well, he didn't do anything to me. But <laughs> you have to think that if Juan Franco fulfills his promise, that that uh, is definitely uh, yes. But he might not be a shortstop. I mean, he I, I agree he has a chance, but he might not wind up a shortstop because Willie Adamas might eventually be your your Rays all time shortstop. True, and there are there are several players on this list who were shortstop prospects um, at the time uh, and some of the guys who are prospects now who may not stick there. Um, you know, if you look down this list, Manny Machado, uh, Gleyber Torres, uh, Alex Bregman, uh, all guys that have moved. Um, a few more of the players uh, to go over the, I'll just run through the players that we said could potentially overtake uh, the current, player rated as the best all-time as the organization's best all-time shortstop. Uh, Bobby Witt Jr., uh, again, another player who's yet to play a major league game, uh, just recently drafted. But Freddie Patek was uh, determined to be the best shortstop in Royals history. Uh, Royce Lewis would have to uh, overtake Roy Smalley. And Dansby Swanson, uh, the Braves' all-time best shortstop, was – voted to be Johnny Logan. Um, and then some of the other guys that are more interesting because they uh, have some Hall of Famers in front of them, but Francisco Lindor, um, Lou Boudreau, it's the Indian shorts, uh, best all-time shortstop. Um, and who else did we have on here? I think there was another one who 
Oh yeah, well we have uh, <laughs> Gleyber Torres. Well, we suggested that jokingly, I think. Or, or, or do you honestly think that uh, that the Torres will pass Derek Jeter? I was being facetious when I suggested that. Uh, I am staying out of this conversation completely. Now, Jim, you you threw that out there. Now you're going to have to defend it. <laughs> I threw it out there jokingly if we wanted to get uh, people uh, in New York irate with us. So, uh, uh, no, I, I, I think Labor Torres could be a very good player. I will not suggest that he's actually going to have a better Yankees career than Derek Jeter. We also have uh, man. Xander Bogarts and uh, Nomar Garciaparra. And I think that one's le- – now, I, I do think that one's legit. I'm not saying it will happen. It could happen. I mean, Bogarts has been their shortstop for – for six years now, you know, Nomar was very good at his peak, but it was like a six-year peak. Um, you know, I don't think Xander Bogarts has been as spectacular, but I think he's going to be there longer. So, so we'll see. I, I don't think that one's a definite, but I do think that is in the realm of possibility. Did you mention? Did you mention Tatis? Did I miss that? Go ahead, Jonathan. No, I was going to say, did you did you mention Tatis? Did I miss that? I did not get to Tatis. Tatis was. Uh, the last player on that list of players that uh, could become the best in the organization's history and and uh, a seemingly reasonable hurdle to clear would be Khalil Green. Right, right. I would have been tempted to put Tatis on the list already, but I guess he's only played one year, so that'd be unfair. I think Jonathan was talking earlier that O'Neill Cruz might surpass Hannes Wagner in Pittsburgh. Uh... I would not. I would not try to say that. Um, yeah, you know what? You're right. I said that right after you said Machado is better than Cal Ripken Jr. See, now you're going to get me in trouble with MLB Network because if Bill Ripken hears that, he's going to think I'm crazy. And I never said that. So. <laughs> now, when, when we put these lists together, um, you guys are often faced with interesting or difficult decisions in terms of looking back to see you know, who, was, who was the most highly regarded prospect and having to kind of block out um, how the players went on to perform. Um, any particularly interesting decisions you guys had to make on this week's list? Yes. I mean, I think I, I had a couple of ones that were on, on the cusp, not necessarily that fit in that uh, look past what kind of big league career they had. Um you know, I had Brandon Wood on my list, but there actually was no other real choice for the Angels. Uh, the A's, you know, Addison Russell versus Franklin Barreto. Um, Russell was the sort of more hyped prospect, but it was close. Um, Troy Tulowitzki and Brendan Rogers, in terms of hype, uh, close. The one that probably was, you know, you were joking about the, the Pirates, Jim, but that one was where I paused because Alan Hansen was on our top 100 a bunch of times. He was our... Uh, choice for Pirates' second base prospect. I do feel that so much has been written about how intriguing O'Neill Cruz is, is now. Uh, so maybe it's a recency bias, but uh, I think he kind of he kind of fit the bill. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. I, I had a couple close calls. I mean, when you're talking, talking about elite prospects, I mean, for instance, Gavin Lux is number two on our top 100 prospects list right now. But sorry, Gavin, Corey Seager was number one, so you, you aren't going to make our Dodgers list. Similarly, I thought Carlos Correa had been our number one prospect at some point, and I guess he was very close, but never was number one. 
So even though he was number one overall pick in the draft, has had a really nice career, and he's our all-time Astros shortstop, you know, Alex Bregman won that one. You know, I had a close call with Aston Russell, too. He came out, like, just barely ahead of Javier Baez with the Cubs. The, the one that was kind of interesting when you look at how their careers play out, if you were doing it, if you were doing factoring in, like, how good the guy was in the big leagues, you'd go with Tim Anderson for the White Sox. But Gordon Beckham was actually a, a higher-rated prospect, and – you know, I've always thought he had one of the more mystifying careers of, of recent top 10 overall picks. I mean, he was he was eighth overall pick. He goes into the minors. He tears it up. He's in Chicago, you know, early next season. You know, as a rookie, puts up at 800 ops. Looks like he's going to be a star. And I don't think, yeah, he never had a 700 ops again in his career. Um, and he just became this kind of mediocre regular who's, who's still bouncing around. It was with Detroit last year. But um, that that was probably the you know, the, the most interesting in terms of, you know, guy who made it versus guy who, you know, I guess 11 year career is nothing to, 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 you know, say, isn't that a, that, that much of an accomplishment, but, but I thought Gordon Beckham was going to be a better player based on the way he broke into the big leagues. Yeah. One interesting thing about this list and you, you just mentioned something that, that brought this to mind is almost without exception, the guys on our lists did go on, to have or are having uh, good to great major league careers uh, with very few exceptions, but with some fairly glaring exceptions. You mentioned Beckham, although, like you said, it's still a, a solid career. Um, Brandon Wood jumped out. Um, uh, and really, there are very few. I mean, you could Hanley Ramirez, Jose Reyes, Trey Turner. Uh, Stephen Drew, Seeger, Tatis, Tulowitzki, Lindor, um, you know, almost without exception, guys who went on to have or are having very good careers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, there's a reason a lot of shortstops, you know, get drafted high, you know, maybe not this year because there aren't as many, but like shortstops in our positions because to play shortstop, you have to be able to do a lot of different things. And even if you don't make it at shortstop, you know, like those tools will translate a lot of other positions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess none of this surprised me. It was kind of interesting, you know, like when we were putting the list together to see how good the players were. But if you had asked me, you know, what positions going to have the best group of prospects and highest ranked prospects and most successful careers, I think I probably would have said shortstop. I mean, it's easy to say now because we didn't have the conversation before, but that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I would suspect our outfield group, which will be the next position after this will probably, probably be similarly stacked, maybe not quite as much. You know, we obviously have three guys in the lineup compared to one and in the outfield, but I think the outfield group is going to look pretty good too. That should be fun. Uh, you know, pitching will be fun, is fun. And, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, this isn't surprising. I, I, I was expecting a few more of the uh, Brandon Wood or Nick Franklin or, or Gordon Beckham types. Um, but, uh, but there, as you pointed out, Jason, there really weren't all that many. I guess JP Crawford is a sort of jury still out kind of guy. So we're going to wrap things up here. Um, I was able to, uh, get one of those interviews done again with, uh, with a prospect that ran on the site earlier and, uh, had a chance to, Talk at length, and I never really talked to him uh, that much. Jim, I know you spoke with Adley Rushman in the spring training, but I had the chance to to talk to him 
uh, a little bit more uh, in detail about what he's been doing, what the Orioles have been doing to help their players uh, during this time of quarantine. Uh, so we're going to end things right now uh, with this interview with Adley Rushman, and we'll uh, talk to everyone next week on the Pipeline Podcast. All right, we're welcomed by Orioles top prospect and, of course, the number one pick in last June's draft, Adley Rushman. Adley, thanks for taking uh, some some time. How you doing? Uh, you know, I think uh, we're doing okay, but uh, it's it's been a tough couple weeks so far. Uh, just yeah, I can, can only I can only imagine. So where? I guess let's start out with where are you right now? Because the last people saw you were you had finished up big league camp in Sarasota, and then uh, and then I'm assuming you you headed home. Where are you right now? Uh, so right now I'm at my parents' place in Sherwood, Oregon, and just staying here for now. Um, I, I rented out my apartment uh, for the season, so I was going to live there, but, um, you know, I'd have to kick someone out. So we're just staying at the parents' place for now. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, when did you make the decision to to head home? Was that something, like, immediately you said, you know what, I think this is probably the best case for me, or did you – did you stay in Florida for a little bit to to try to to figure out what you know what might end up happening? Um, so I remember it was about three days before I got sent home that guys were kind of talking about the whole situation and no one really knew what was going on and there was just a lot of chaos. But leading up to those days, I think uh, guys were kind of mentally in and out, didn't know if we were going to go home. And then I got the call that morning that I was flying out later that day and basically that I was just going home. So it was uh, just a, you know, big shift uh, in one day. I bet. I bet. I mean, take me through, you know, just what some of those frustrations were like and how, you know, how you've been able to handle it. Cause you know, here you are, number one pick, you go out, you get your feet wet professionally, you have big league camp, everyone's excited. I'm sure you're more excited than anyone else to get really started in your first full season. And, and, and then it, it stops before it, it started. How, how have you been able to, to handle that frustration? I think, uh, I think the Orioles have done a great job so far of just keeping guys connected. Uh, we've had a lot of Zoom meetings. Uh, we did a cooking class the other day together on Zoom. And we're doing like a book club and stuff. So I think guys are really staying engaged that way. And, uh, you know, because there's a big worry about mental health right now and guys just being alone for so long and uh, when we should, you know, when we should have been playing already. So I think uh, I think they're doing a good job as far as that goes. And just, you know, they're being super accommodating as far as uh, workouts go, making them, um, you know, making it available for guys who don't have equipment. Uh, just because gyms are closed and whatnot. So on that standpoint, it's been uh, – they made it a lot easier for us. And um, I think, you know, being around family is never bad either. I think if I was living alone right now, it would be a lot more difficult. But since I get to see my family every day, it's been a little bit easier as far as that goes. Oh, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, in terms of workouts, one of the things I want to ask you, not even from a, a, from a weight training standpoint, um, but, you know, I've talked to some other players and, you know, I think, you know, as a hitter on your own, you could even do a lot of T work. You can take swings. Pitching can be difficult, but there's things you get, like as a catcher, when you're quarantined or isolated, like 
is it difficult to to work on your on your craft obviously you're not catching professional level level pitchers but what are you doing to keep all aspects of your game as sharp as as possible given the circumstances uh you got to be creative uh you you really do so i think as far as the catching goes uh just catching guys live is obviously the best thing you can do uh because it's the most um you know most similar to game time situations so right now it's um, a lot of like tennis ball receiving and uh, just I think as far as like blocking goes a lot of blocking is mental and just maintaining flexibility so as far as that goes that's kind of how I go about it from that standpoint but the receiving the technique uh, done with tennis balls and then um, the blocking is uh, flexibility um, and then just trying to like visualize and meditate as much as I can um, try and get my mind in that game uh, situation, put myself in that, uh, in that, you know, seventh game of the world series type situation and try and um, calm my, calm my mind and just uh, visualize how I go about that situation because uh, that's the closest I can get to it right now. Can you, can you practice framing at all? Are there things that you, know, you can do to, to, to work on that? Or is that all part of a, more of the visualization kind of end of things given, given where we're at? Uh, the framing is just, like I said, tennis balls and my dad tossing to me. Um, it's just working on that path to the ball and making sure that I'm, you know, creating those good solid habits uh, with my glove and, um, and just trying to basically yeah, stay polished as much as possible, even though it's uh, not going to be as good of work as, um, as it could be off live guys. Right, and, game, and, and pitch calling, things like that is something you're just going to have to wait on. Exactly. I mean, it's the, the best I can do as far as pitch calling right now is uh, we have a catching group message that we're in right now where we send in uh, different um, stuff, uh, different articles and whatnot, and just different uh, cues from our catching coaches. And then watching games, you know, old games, and trying to see how I would pitch them versus what's getting called. And um, so there's a lot you can do. It's just you know, you're not in that game situation. So, uh, uh, but it's, you can still get in that work. How tired is your dad right now? He probably thought he was kind of done with this, right? So, you know, is he, is he, are you wearing him out? I mean, that, that's the thing is my dad's got more energy than me. So he's, uh, he's uh, an anomaly for sure, but uh, he's enjoying having me back. And um, he's always, he's always got the bucket of balls ready to go um whenever I you know whenever I want to go hit so he's he's just a super you know super nice guy and just always uh, motivated all right well tell him I need to have a separate conversation with him as, a, as an older guy with a almost 19 year old son I need, I need to find some of his hidden pools of, of energy yeah man I, I don't know how he does it man's 60 so <laughs> man oh well now I really feel terrible about myself <laughs> he right, makes well, me feel I'm curious about about this uh, the cooking class. Like, what what are they teaching you? What kind of cooking skills did you already you know bring to them? Give give us a scattering report on on you as a as a chef. Okay, so uh, coming into this cooking class, I was uh, I'm I'm a breakfast connoisseur. You know, I can cook up a nice breakfast, uh, but you know, when it comes to baking and um, you know working around the oven and 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 whatnot, I'm you know I'm floundering a little bit so this class uh we took together we had uh, our two nutritionists um on the call and had probably about 60 guys and um we got all the ingredients 
about a week in advance or a couple of days in advance. And then um, on, it was on last Saturday, we did a, uh, um, you know, we just got all the ingredients together and they walked us through how to prepare like a nice nutritious meal that, um, you know, it was, we either had, we had two meals of salmon and um, chicken, a pesto chicken with like potatoes and, and veggies. So it was a, you know, fun hour of, of learning and uh, just, you know, uh, <laughs> making fun of each other because, you know, we don't know what we're doing sometimes. So it was, it was fun. Fair enough. You can all, you know, that's like the sixth tool you didn't know you needed to have. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, man, it's important. What, um, what's your go-to breakfast? If you're, if you're, if they're a breakfast connoisseur, if I were to come to the Adley Rushman bed and breakfast, what, what are you serving? I mean, Oh, gosh, if I'm if I'm making my most elite breakfast, um, oh, gosh, I don't know. I made crepes yesterday morning. Um, that was that was pretty good. But I'm a big um, eggs, sausage, like scramble guy. Just toss some cheese on there, and and some country gravy. You know, just make a big old pile of of uh, you know goodness there, and uh, toss some hash browns on the side. And you know, a nice fruit smoothie to go along with it. But I mean, breakfast is simple. That's why you know. That's why I can do it. So <laughs> um, all right. And what's uh, what's on the book club list? What have you been reading? Um, so we're just doing a bunch of like uh, we're doing like mindset books. So the book is actually called Mindset. And then um, we're doing a, uh, um, a Legacy, the All Blacks. So that's kind of the next one on the list. But it's been. Um, it's been good, man. They, you know, we're staying in touch and it's, I mean, as much as it is a learning experience, it's also just, um, getting to talk to the guys and also pick everyone's mind and see what makes each guy tick. And it's fun to see what each guy interprets out of the, out of the different texts. So it's, it's fun. All right, last thing for you, because I know even with all this, there's still downtime. Uh, everyone's binge watching something. What's, what's on your, what's in your Netflix or Amazon queue? Like, what what are your recommendations for people to binge watch? Okay, so I've got a lot of um, I've I've personally had a lot of recommendations for Tiger King, just because that's the one that everyone's watching right now. But I personally haven't seen it. Um, in the fall, I was big on Scandal, um, the show You. Um, oh gosh, I mean, uh, Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of good TV shows out there. Uh, Oh, gosh, oh, Lucifer, big Lucifer fan. Um, yeah, uh, those are kind of those are my go-to's right now. But I've heard uh, I've heard about a couple others like The Witcher and um, and whatnot. So yeah, it's kind of as you know what I lied. That was not my last question. I got one more for you because there is okay. <laughs> there is going to be a draft at some point. Uh, we've been working on our draft list. Uh, obviously, you were at the top of our draft list a, a year ago. It, it's definitely different. But you know a lot of these guys. You played with or against them uh, at different stages. If you had the number one pick in this year's draft, who, you <laughs> who am I taking? Yeah. Shoot, man. I don't know. I mean, the only guy I, I really got to play against was uh, Torkelson. Um, and, you know, I, I love him. He's, he's a great guy. And, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult time right now. Uh, for those guys especially, so I feel for them, and um, you know I want all the best for them. So I mean, I I hope all those guys uh, get their chance and get that moment too, because it's I mean it's one of the most special moments you're ever gonna experience. So I, I mean I, I want the best for them, and I you know I think I think they're all gonna do good. So um, 
but that's that's for the GM's job, man. I'm <laughs> I don't get paid to do that. <laughs> Very professionally answered. Well done. Yeah, I can see that the, your media skills have not suffered during this time. Also, Adley, thank you so much uh, for the time. And hopefully the next time we talk, it'll uh, be behind a batting cage somewhere. I hope so, too. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Thanks, Adley.